0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. We are grateful for you have joined us online. Those of you who are online, those of you who are here in person, we're grateful for you. Thankful for your being here this morning. And uh, man, all of you guys sound good. And I just want to echo choir and orchestra. You guys sounded great this morning. A lot of you are out there now. So I'm telling you out there too. But all of you up here, you sounded great this morning and I'm very appreciative of that. If you've got your Bibles with you and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew and to chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Today we're going to consider a parable that Jesus told uh, in response to a question about forgiveness that was asked by Peter, one of his disciples. Now, A parable is just simply, it's a simple story that is told to communicate a a main point, a a crucial and significant point. And Jesus often used parables. Uh, He he taught in parables quite regularly. In fact, he uses two here in Matthew chapter 18. But he used uh, this parable that I want us to look at this morning at the end of chapter 18 to address Peter's question with regard to how often he was supposed to forgive somebody who had wronged him. Now, I should point out to you that Peter's question that he asked Jesus didn't just come out of the blue. Rather, it came in the context of Jesus' teaching about relationships. Specifically, Jesus taught about the high value that he placed upon relationships and the high value that his followers needed to place upon relationships in fact that high value is is communicated in a in a, a first parable that he told here and up in verses 12 and through 14 he tells about a parable of, of a man who had a hundred sheep and and one of those sheep went astray and Jesus describes that the man left the 99 sheep that he had in the fold and he went out to search for the one sheep that went astray And in that parable, Jesus centers in on the joy that this man experienced when that one sheep was finally found. In other words, the high value that Jesus placed upon relationship is illustrated in the great risk that the man took and by his willingness to go out to seek that one lost and straying sheep. And what becomes clear in that parable is that in the eyes of the great shepherd, there are there are no unimportant, there are no expendable sheep. Now, that theme is developed further in the next section of the chapter. On the heels of that parable, Jesus tells about, uh, about his disciples that, look, if, if one of you have a, a, an argument or if something is done something wrong to you by one of your brothers, this is what you need to do. You need to go to that person and explain to them what they've done and seek to make reconciliation. And if that doesn't work, then you, you go and you take a couple of others with you and you go to that individual and you you seek to make reconciliation and you seek to, to create a scenario in which there can be harmony placed back in the relationship again. And if that doesn't work, then you go to the church and then you you seek to try to create this scenario where resolution can be reached. And if that still doesn't work, then the offending party is to be treated like an outsider. Now, what's important to recognize is that the goal of this entire process is certainly not the excommunication and the punishment of the offender. No, the goal is reconciliation. The goal all through it is the fact that there was to be unity and there was to be repentance and there was to be restoration. Once again, we see Jesus placing a very high value on relationships. Now it was at this point following Jesus' teaching with the issues of straying and the issues of offense and reconciliation in view that Peter asks his question with regard to forgiveness. And he naturally wanted to know, Peter just wanted to know, well is there a limit past which I'm no longer required to go? He assumes Peter does the, the position of a person who has been offended by someone else And he wanted to know at what point did the high value that Jesus placed upon relationships, well, at what point does that get traded for the value of of honor and and dignity? We might even rephrase Peter's question this way. Isn't there a point where enough is enough? We probably all ask that question. I know I have. I'll be honest. I'll admit that I've asked that question many times. There's been many points in my life where I said, that's it, I'm done. I've I've, I've put up with as much, I've I've taken as much as I can take and I'm not taking any more. That's what makes circling back to this parable so important. That's what makes circling back to the words of Christ and listening to what he says so incredibly important for every single believer in this room. We have to go back to what Jesus has said and we have to take what he has said and apply it to our lives. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. That's not just a phrase that I use that's trite. It's one that I think we need to remember. With that said, let's read the word of God this morning, beginning in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 18. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. As he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold, and his wife, and his children, and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we come before you this day on this beautiful day. Lord, we come before you asking for you to speak to us through your holy word. Allow our hearts to be open before you. We pray that all distractions would be forced out of our minds so that we might be able to focus for a few moments this morning on what you would speak to us. And then we pray that this word, as it speaks to us, your Holy Spirit speaks to us. You would transform our lives and continue to conform us in the image of Jesus. Help us to be able to focus on that which you would help us to you would have us to, to hear this morning. And then help us to, to move in that direction, following you obediently. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So the subject that we're considering today is as I have titled this, this sermon is the fundamental nature of forgiveness. The fundamental nature of forgiveness. Now, the word fundamental means something. It means something is vital. It means that something is essential. It means that something is absolutely necessary. And I think it's important that we recognize that, that Peter was not arguing that point in his question. In fact, by his question, Peter was, he, he was not suggesting that forgiveness was optional. Rather, he wanted to clarify just simply the limits of forgiveness, Peter's question was concerned with, with how often those who follow Christ are required to forgive those who offend them. And so, so Peter asked if seven times was, was enough. Now, before we criticize Peter for shooting too low with his number, I think we ought to actually commend him for asking the question. Um, at least he recognized that it was the spirit of his master to forgive. And he recognized that as Christ's followers, we need to reflect that same attitude and that same spirit. So in that regard, I I don't think Peter deserves our ridicule as much as he deserves our recognition here. At least he was asking the question. At least he knew it was his responsibility to forgive. So often, many of us don't even try. We hold grudges and we, we, we refuse to forgive the offenses of others. My, my son Charlie recently played in in the, the playoffs of his baseball recreational baseball league, and it was a single elimination tournament, which simply means that if you lose one game, you're out. They call these tournaments one and done. So many of us, though, that's how we treat others. You say one thing wrong, you do one thing wrong, you cross me one time, we're done. I think at least Peter's question puts that into perspective. You see, for so many of us one-and-doners, to forgive seven times is outrageous. you got to be kidding. But before I congratulate Peter too much, let's consider Jesus' answer to his question. You see, Peter wondered if forgiving someone for an offense seven times was enough, but Jesus showed him that that there was much he needed to learn. And, And listen, I think there's much that all of us need to learn as well. Jesus responded to Peter's question by stating that the number of times to forgive was not seven times. It was was 77 times, as some of your versions read, or the Greek's a little confusing here. The New King James translates it as 77 times 7, or 70 times 7. See, I'm even confused on how many numbers it is. The number could even be up to 490 times. Listen, Jesus' point was not that we walk around with a clicker in our pocket, clicking one every time somebody says something to us and keeping track of it. That was not what he's saying. You see, in keeping with his focus on risking everything to go out and seek the straying sheep, and in keeping with his focus of the great lengths that we must go to to achieve reconciliation within the body of Christ... Well, Jesus is here emphasizing the high value that he places upon forgiveness and upon relationships by suggesting that as his followers, we have to throw away the calculator when it comes to how often we've been offended and how often we must forgive others. And that leads me to the first point that I want you to notice. I've been giving you a lot of hooks lately. I'm not giving hooks today. I'm giving statements, so it's a little different. But here's some statements that I'm going to give to you today that I think are borne out by this text. And the first statement is this. Christ-likeness necessitates that we always be willing to forgive others. In other words, as Christ's followers, as those who are emulating our lives after Jesus, there should be an unlimited nature to our willingness to forgive. I will not attempt to soft-soap that concept. I want you to know that's hard. Those are hard words. When someone hurts you or someone you love, forgiveness is perhaps the most difficult thing in the world to consider. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. You see, when someone hurts us or does us wrong, our nature is to become angry. Our nature is to become bitter. Our nature is to seek vengeance. But the words of our Savior tell us that those attitudes and those those actions will not work. They're not virtues. In fact, the Bible clearly tells us that they're sinful. Now, to illustrate the point, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. And he tells us that a certain king wanted to settle his accounts. So he called in one of his servants who owed him an enormous debt. He says 10,000 talents. Now let's try to put that into perspective. Historians have determined that, that a talent was a weight of money that was equal to 6,000 denarii. And since a, a working man typically received one denarius a day for his labor then a talent would have been the equivalent of six thousands of those or equivalent to 20 years' worth of wages. But then multiply that by 10,000, and what you come up with is basically an incalculable debt. It's a debt so large that you really can't hang a number on it. Many have tried, and the estimate goes up into the billions upon billions of dollars. That's the equivalent of what Jesus is saying here. And he's obviously using hyperbolic language. He's using, he's using language that, that expands the ability to really put into concrete form for a reason. Because he's doing it to make a point. He wanted Peter and he wanted the rest of his disciples, and he wants you and me to know and to recognize that this servant who owed this exorbitant amount of money was hopelessly indebted with no ability whatsoever to repay the amount of money. In fact, he was completely, absolutely bankrupt, and he was going to be sold into slavery. Not only he, but also his family were all going to have to suffer because of the debt. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important that we recognize that this part of the parable illustrates just how large our debt is before a holy God. When we think of ourselves, we often trivialize our sin. I mean, we all make mistakes, right? All of us do. I do. You do. We even state it right here. We did earlier this morning that we are not a perfect church because every single person from the pastor all the way down are fallible. We are, we are people who make mistakes. And so often, because that is our understanding, we made it. Tend to trivialize it I mean nobody's perfect right it's not that big a deal but listen sin is no small matter to an absolutely righteous and perfect God sin drives a wedge between us and God that we have absolutely no ability to remove on our own and that sin destroys our relationship with him Furthermore, sin places you and me in a position of spiritual bankruptcy. We owe a debt that we cannot pay and could never pay back if we had an eternity to try. So make no mistake about it, because of our own sin, we must, we have to see ourselves in this servant who who owes a debt so large that he cannot pay it back. Now in this parable, faced with that harsh reality of his situation, notice what this servant who owes this, this astronomical debt, notice what he does. He falls to his knees and he pleads for mercy. He says, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all that I owe you. What I find amazing about this man is that he had obviously not grasped the full weight of his inability to repay his master. He, he still had not come to grips with the absolute massive debt that he owed. But even more shocking than that to me is what the king does. Amazingly, the king took pity on his servant. Jesus says that the king was moved with compassion and as a result, he released his servant from his debt and forgave him all that he owed. Now, I want you to just think about that for just a minute. The king instantly forgave his servant and canceled his massive and incalculable debt. Why? Why would he do that? What reason could there be for such a merciful act? Well, Jesus tells us. Compassion. Compassion. You and I cannot miss this point. Jesus intends for us to see ourselves here. Our sin amasses a debt that we cannot ever hope to pay, but God has forgiven us through Christ, and he has done it because of his compassion towards sinners like you and me. And our debt has been canceled. It's been erased. It's been completely forgiven. I don't know if your mortgage company's calling you up and telling you, you know, hey, that that money that you owe on the house, hey, let's just forget about it. We're just going to send you the deed and everything's going to... I don't know how many of that's happened to you, but it's never happened to me. That doesn't work. That, that doesn't compute. But God, God deals in compassion. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, if we just were to camp out right there on that verse for a little bit. By the way, Psalms are coming back, but we're not there yet. But when we get back there, we'll camp on those kind of verses. But if if God just were to take an account of Craig yesterday and he were to mark all the iniquities in my life, how could I stand before him? How? I, I have no standing before him. Neither do you. That's the first part of that Psalm 130, but then verse 4 says this, but there is forgiveness with you. That's the, that's the good news. The bad news is we have no standing before God. The good news is, but there's forgiveness with God. Now let me point out that if as Christ's followers, back to our parable, if we are to emulate Him and our pattern of life needs to follow His pattern, then as we have already determined, Christ-likeness necessitates that we are always going to be forgiving. And furthermore, we must recognize that Christ's compassion toward us must serve as the model for how we treat others. In fact, that's the second point that I want you to see. The second statement on your outline this morning is this. Christ's compassion serves as the model for all forgiveness. In his commentary on this parable, Gary Enrig, he he correctly notes that compassion is a, Really, it's an overarching term that takes both grace and mercy into account. In other words, the display of compassion that leads to forgiveness is not only an act of mercy, it's also an act of grace. He points out this. He says, the nature of forgiveness is release from debt. That's mercy. To be released from your debt, that's mercy. But it's released by the payment of a price. That's grace. Your release can only come because a payment was made, and the payment is God's grace toward you. He goes on to make this point. On a far more important level, this is the message of the gospel. The debt sinner's owe to a holy God is paid for by the debt holder himself, God the Son, through his death on the cross. Listen, that is why we as believers, we talk about being, we talk about being forgiven. That's why we use that word. I've been forgiven. It means my debt's been canceled. I've been set free. The the debt, the, the weight that I carried with me because of my sin has been lifted off of me because of what Jesus has done. It is because we have literally been set free from a debt that we could never pay back by the only one who could ever forgive us of it. And he did it by paying the debt himself that's amazing and that's the good news for all believers listen if you if you are a Christian this morning that is your story your debt has been released and paid for by Jesus Christ and it is an awesome and fantastic story to be sure Sadly, the story so often does not end there, and neither does Jesus' parable. He continues, and I want you to notice the next shocking set of events that occur, because no sooner had the servant been released from his debt, and did he leave the presence of the king and go out, than, than Jesus tells us that he meets a fellow servant who owed him money. And Jesus tells us the amount that he owed. He owed 100 denarii. Now, again, if a denarii or denarius is one day's labor, then it's 100 days... Labor, three or four months. That's not insignificant. Three or four months of of, of pay is a significant amount of money, but in comparison to the incalculable debt that he had just been forgiven, it's trivial. It's, It's the dust on the scales. Nevertheless, notice that the man's focus shifts from the incalculable debt from which he had been freed to the far less significant debt which he is owed. And notice how he responds. He grabs up his fellow servant and he chokes him and he tells him that he better pay up. That's amazing, isn't it? That's an amazing response from someone who had just been forgiven such a huge debt. I think it's interesting to note that the second servant's response is exactly the same as the first. You see, when the first fell on his knees before the king, he said... Have patience with me and I will pay you all. Those are the exact same words that the second servant uses to him. And you would think that somehow or another that would have reminded the first servant of the situation that he had just been in. But evidently they didn't. In fact, rather than having compassion as the king had done, the first servant demanded payment. The truth is, we can definitively say that Christ like compassion was not being demonstrated by this man toward his fellow servant. In fact, the man refused to forgive his servant and he threw him into prison. He showed no compassion, no mercy, no grace, no forgiveness. I want you to consider just what an ugly picture that is. It's the picture and the portrait of a heart of one who refuses to recognize the depths from which they have been lifted. And it paints for us the picture of one who does not understand, nor do they appreciate the debt from which they have been released. Jesus goes on to tell us that when other servants saw how this first servant treated the second, they went and told the king. Because it was apparent to them that the behavior that was being demonstrated, did not correspond to how a forgiven person ought to act. And upon hearing this news, the king became furious. In verse 32, he refers to the first servant as being wicked. And he says to him, I forgave all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And the implication is just clear. The man should have followed his master's example by choosing to receive forgiveness. Because that that choosing to receive forgiveness from God, it it obligates us to practice forgiveness. In fact, that's the third point that I want you to see on your outline. Choosing to receive forgiveness obligates us to practice forgiveness. Listen, our Lord's compassion, His, His display of grace and mercy, that does not free us from our responsibility. To the contrary, it creates a demand. It creates an obligation. Compassion received means compassion must be displayed. Christ-like compassion that leads us to forgive those who have wronged and hurt us is not an option that we can choose if we want to or if we feel like it. Rather, it is an obligation for believers who have themselves been forgiven. The Apostle Paul tells us this exact thing in Ephesians 4 verse 32. He says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Brothers and sisters, the Scriptures are clear. Forgiveness is not an option for believers. It is our practice because We have been forgiven. To quote C.S. Lewis once more, he says, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Now, you may protest and you may say, But, Pastor, you have no idea what's been done to me. You don't know what she did. You don't know how he hurt me. You don't know how long it went on. It's too painful. It happened way too many times and it hurts too much. Listen, I want you to know that that I I grieve with you over your story and I grieve with you over the pain that you bear because you've been hurt. And what I'm saying to you this morning does not mean that forgiveness involves you saying, oh, listen, it's all right. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. That's. That's not the forgiveness I'm talking about. That happens among my kids so often when they do what they do and they get to yeah, yan yeah, and fighting back and I've had all of it that I'm going to take and I make them go in there and okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, it's okay. That's not the kind of forgiveness I'm talking about. Listen, I'm also not saying that because you forgive somebody, you become a doormat that they can just walk over again and again and again without any sense of accountability whatsoever. No, I think, I think forgiveness demands accountability. It's at its heart. And I'm well aware of the debt that builds up when someone meets, mistreats you and maligns you and abuses you and lies to you and cheats on you and any other number of things that you can come up with that can be done to degrade you. Those kinds of things cannot just simply be waved off as inconsequential. Those things are not right And they are a big deal. And they will leave a lasting effect on those who have been injured by them. And there needs to be accountability on behalf of the the offending party. And I have no doubt that during this entire sermon this morning, the faces of those offenders have been running through your minds. People who have hurt you and people who have caused you pain. A spouse, a, a parent, a friend, a child, a business partner, an adversary. I have no doubt that when you see their faces and you think about the things that they did to you, you get a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. Your your back muscles tense up. Your blood pressure rises. Your eyes tend to moisten up when you think about the pain that's there. The truth is, you probably are sitting there thinking to yourself, I don't think I can forgive them for what they have done or for what they have done to those that I love. And you hear what Jesus says here in Matthew 18 about forgiveness and you struggle with it and you wonder, is there really a possibility out there for me to be able to forgive those persons? And I want you to know there's only one answer to that question and it comes in the cross. You see, the cross is where you and I receive forgiveness. And the cross is where we learn how to forgive. It's only after we have come face to face with all that Christ has forgiven us of that we will ever be able to learn how to forgive others. But even then, we will not be able to do it on our own. Left to ourselves, we will surely fail. And that is why the cross is so important. Because through the power of the cross, Christ works in and through us and he enables us to forgive the most heinous and the most unforgivable offenses. On our own, we will never be able to truly forgive others. But as Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. When we humble ourselves and when we ask for the Spirit of God to help us, He will do so. He will provide us with the strength that we need to forgive. But when we refuse to do so, when we make the decision to withhold compassion and forgiveness from those who have wronged us, well, we put ourselves in a very bad situation. In fact, the parable Jesus tells us that the king became so angry that the man who received forgiveness and refused to practice forgiveness in return, that he delivered him to the torturers until he should repay that was due to him. So the man who had his debtor thrown into prison gets thrown into prison right next to him. And he's tormented in the very same way. And just to make sure we get the point from the parable, Jesus adds in verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. In other words, what, what this man experienced is indicative of what those who are part of the kingdom of heaven will experience if they refuse to forgive others. Now this part of the parable I don't think needs to be pressed too far as to suppose that Jesus is saying that those who have been forgiven can suddenly be unforgiven. and and can suddenly lose their salvation. No, John 10, 27 and 28, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verse 38 and 39, Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is not talking about our salvation here, but he is saying, listen, he is saying that if it is true that Christ-likeness necessitates that we be willing to forgive others, and if it is true that Christ's compassion serves as the model for all forgiveness, and if it is true that by choosing to receive forgiveness we are then obligated to practice forgiveness, then listen, if we choose to remain hardened, and unforgiving of others who have wronged us, then we must truly examine whether or not the grace of Christ has actually been applied to our lives. Nancy Lee DeMoss has written this in her book on forgiveness. She says, those who remain intransigent or stubborn in their unforgiveness give no credible evidence that they have ever been forgiven themselves. Brothers and sisters, the message of this parable bears that truth out. And I believe that the scriptures further point to the fact that the Holy Spirit will not allow those who have been forgiven to be satisfied and disobedient in cultivating an unforgiving spirit in their hearts. I believe that he will bring conviction in their lives and he will bring correction. Perhaps that is what Christ intends to convey in this parable. You see, though our eternal salvation may not be in question, there is nevertheless the real danger that threatens the life of every believer who refuses to extend forgiveness to others. When we continue to cultivate an unforgiving and a bitter spirit, such attitudes and actions may bring about torment and torture into our lives that is more real than physical pain. Jesus says that, he handed, that the king handed this servant over to the torturers or to the jailers what we may understand then is that refusing to forgive others ultimately looks like a person who is locked into a prison of their own making. And the chief victim of that entire thing is not the other person. The chief victim is you. As the old saying goes, refusing to forgive and remaining bitter is like drinking poison and expecting it to kill the other person. I love the story of Robert E. Lee when after the Civil War He visited a lady who took him to the remains of this grand old tree in front of her house. And she cried bitterly as she looked at the limbs and at the trunk of that tree that had been destroyed by federal artillery fire. And she turned and she looked at Lee for a word that condemned the northern army. Or at least she was wanting some sort of sympathy expressed by him for the loss that she had experienced. And after a brief silence, it said that Lee looked at the lady and said, cut it down, my dear madam, and forget it. His point was simply that it is better to forgive the injustices of the past than to allow them to remain and let bitterness take root and poison the rest of our lives. To nurture the damaged trees of wrongs done to us is to be a prisoner of the past and to continually place ourselves in a torture chamber of our own making. But I want you to know that Christ came to set us free from that. Freedom from the power and the dominion of Satan, freedom from the fear of defeat and death, and freedom from the pain and the torture of our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of others toward us. That's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The power of the cross frees us from the debt of our sin and our enslavement to sin, and it empowers us as forgiven people to forgive others. What I want you to know is in order to truly be in possession of that power, you have to have come to the ability and come to the place where you have been forgiven. You have to come to the place where you recognize that you owe a debt to God that you could never pay. If you, if you have never placed your faith in Christ this morning, I want you to know you stand as that servant who stands before his master with no ability to repay that which you owe. Every single one of us in this room find ourselves in that place. But God offers mercy and he offers compassion. And he offers grace to those who will humble themselves and plead and come before him and say, look, I have no ability to pay you back, but I plead for your mercy. And God says that those who humble themselves before him, he will extend mercy and passion, compassion and, and grace. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with that. Maybe you've never come to that point where you feel forgiven. I want you to know in just a moment, I'm going to be up front and so is Pastor Ted and so is Pastor Dave. Maybe you'd like to come and take our hand and say, could you pray with me about that? Can we set up a time to talk more about what it means to come to know that I have been forgiven? Listen, there's not going to be a greater thing that's ever going to happen in your life than that. So that's the first step. But maybe you say, Pastor, I've done that. Boy, I am still struggling so bad with what she did. I hurt so bad because of his, the pain he caused me. I can't seem to let this go then the step that you must go back through then is this. Look at just this example. To follow Christ means that my life has to emulate this. and And to know that I have been forgiven means that I'm responsible to forgive. And I may not have all the answers and I may not have to be best friends with that person again, but I have to release them from the debt and I have to turn that loose because God in Christ has forgiven me. And that is the step of obedience that begins to unlock the prison in which you find yourself and being able to shed the weight of the burden that you find yourself carrying. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word, for its clarity. I thank you that it pierces us into the very heart of who we are. It touches areas that we would prefer not to have touched. It hurts, but it does that so that it can heal. So my prayer this morning is for healing. Healing for those who are struggling with forgiveness. My prayer is also for those who have never received your forgiveness because they've never humbled themselves before you. My prayer this morning is that they would both find that the cross is the answer. And it's the only answer that is there. Thank you for this day and thank you for this opportunity. In Christ's name, amen.